Welcome to Unlikely Intersections, where intent, impact, and inquiry inspire our conversations. I'm Doc Philip Brown, and I've got my good friend, Dr. Terry Jackson, here, and you are at the intersection. The interesting thing about intersections is that we all face many intersections daily. They may be at work, at play, at worship, but how we navigate these intersections has a tremendous amount to do with the course of our lives yes. and of our days. That's right. Today's episode, inspired by a listener, our good friend Linda Pierce. Yes. It's a pretty exciting episode. Yes, yes. It was interesting because as she had basically listened to one of the other episodes, she suggested this episode. And of course, you and I communicated about it and said, hey, it's a powerful episode that, that needs to be uh, recorded. And it's one that uh, we think that everybody will enjoy. Well, I look forward to getting into it. Yes, so do I. Where do you want to start? That's a good question. <laughs> Where would you like to start? Well, you know, um, we just start. That's all. Because we've had these kinds of conversations before. And she put a little twist on it. She says, you know what? If you and Dr. Brown had the conversation and Dr. Brown, you would ask Dr. Brown, what if you were a black man, Dr. Brown? Yeah, man, I tell you, as I was preparing for this conversation, it really had me doing my homework mm. uh, because we're talking about, as I sort of thought through, we're talking about, so I think her original question was, what if you changed and, and I was black and you were white for yes. one year? Yes. And then I thought about the construct of, well, that might be difficult. And so how do, what if it was just a full reversal, right? What if it had had all the all the factors, an upbringing, uh, raising a family, a professional, all those things. So I don't know where we'll end up landing uh, with today's discussion, but I'm definitely willing to take on the discussion. <laughs> uh, even though, you know, the first thing that, that came uh, to my mind as we, as we contemplated this topic is, well, let me understand a risk benefit, mm -hmm. not of the show, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. of the proposition, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. as a, mm -hmm. as a, a surgeon, that's kind of how I've been trained to think over many years, right? Mm -hmm. So what are the risks and what are the rewards of a given proposition? Yep. yep. And that just in and of itself <laughs> uh, really uh, is informative. It, it is. It, and, and, you know, I kind of thought about it from the other perspective of, what are the risks and rewards looking at it as if I were a white man or if I were white? And you and I had a little conversation back and forth about it, and I truly understand and agree with what we talked about, and we'll get into that. Um, but as I thought about it, man, it was like, and I think I mentioned to you, I know more about what it is to be white in America, being that I've had to grow up and assimilate to white culture and white educational system just to survive in the system uh, the way that it is, because that's truly what it is. It's an assimilation. Um, and as some of my friends and I joke, you know, every time we go back home, there's a whole decompression that has to happen, right? Because when you're out in the world, it's like being a chameleon. The colors change. 
and you change to the environment that you're in and you adapt to the environment that you're in so that you don't die an early death. Uh, and that's quite quite interesting because now when I'm looking at it from the white perspective, none of that comes into play. I just think about what the advantages, you know, kind of are. And I think I mentioned to you some years ago, I said, if I were a white man in this city and I had the contacts and the network that I have, I'd be a billionaire by now. It's so amazing. The first thing that struck me very quickly after we had our conversation about doing this is, <laughs> man, you're in over your head because you don't mm. know what you don't know, mm. right? And mm. and the truth of it is, obviously, I think a lot of people who know me know I've done a lot of work in this mm-hmm. area and the mm-hmm. whole construct mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. of equity and justice and all these kind of things, but that's not lived experience, and those things are dramatically different. Right, and you know, some people look question whether or not this is even a safe conversation to have, right? Because people don't want the difficult conversations, right? Um, they don't want the difficult collisions. You know, from a when you look at it from a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective, you know, we're always talking about empathy. You know, let's you know, think about the other person. You know, think about the other gender, and what we're doing today. At, at least we're going to attempt to do is be the other person. And given some of the research that we've done and some of the work that you've done, um, I'm real comfortable having this conversation because it is one that is truly needed. Definitely needed and and still very poorly understood mm-hmm. in a lot of respects, I mm-hmm. think. And, mm-hmm. you know, the first thing I did, and I realized as I was doing this prep, several hours into this prep, I realized for lack of a better way of saying it, I'm kind of using white rules to do this prep. How, <laughs> how well is that going to work? Right, right, like, right, it's like right, right. Practicing baseball to play basketball. That's it's, right. That's really right. Doesn't necessarily translate, you know. So I started thinking more fundamentally. Like mm. I was like, so first thing, if to to take this on, we would think, well, maybe there's something to gain for each of us, mm-hmm, right, in doing mm-hmm, it. Obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What comes immediately to mind is better understanding, which mm-hmm. we have many episodes talking about curiosity, about mm-hmm. purpose, about understanding, about mm-hmm. all these things. So that's that's certainly a benefit, right? It's right. just to, to have a chance to walk in someone else's shoes is a benefit in and of itself just because it makes you better able to understand. That's right. That's right. That's a pretty short list. <laughs> right because yes. when i started looking through some of the other things in terms of the change that it would take if i were to become a black man mm-hmm. that becomes a much more difficult proposition because yes. it doesn't matter what sector of society i'm looking at it is a much more uh, upstream swim uh, as a black man than it was for me as a white man, which yeah. is not hard for me to say, but I know it's often a difficult point of conversation for many because our tendency is to say, but I worked hard, yeah, you yeah, know, and right. I did, right? But what I don't know, it's the same thing. I don't know what I don't know. I don't know what I didn't have to work against. Right. That's Sometimes that. I think that's a good place uh, to to do some work is so, you know, what – what was missing out of the out of the journey that I took. That's right. And, and what's interesting from a black man's perspective is 
so we get we, we become as educated as we possibly can and maybe um, our articulation changes a little bit right and so you hear the phrase like are you speaking like you're white or uh, as President Obama uh, I've heard plenty of people say well he wasn't black enough where from a at least that I know of, I haven't heard. I've never heard anyone say someone wasn't white enough. I never heard anyone say that someone didn't speak quite enough um, from this perspective. And so, you know, there are those double standards that kind of exist uh, when it comes to, I'm going to say, the African American. I've never even heard anyone say he's not Chinese enough or he's not Asian enough. He's not Latino enough. That's a phrase that kind of, as you see yourself uh, navigating this place called America as, a, as, as anyone black, um, you know, that, that whole you're a sellout because you speak well, you're well-educated. I remember, I remember growing up in Wilmington and playing basketball at Day Street Center. Knew a lot of guys up there, played well. The minute that I went to college and came back to play my first time, I was then reclassified as he's a college boy now. And I'm like, so what changed? And that was the perceptions amongst the guys who were playing ball there. And so that was something that I had to face as a, as a black male. Now I'm looked at differently by my peers. You know, and so as I made this journey to become as educated as I can, and when I finished my MBA, I asked the question, what next? And for me, the, the question was, well, let me earn a PhD. And it wasn't, I didn't want to earn it simply because I was looking to climb somebody's corporate ladder or even teach. The question for me is, now that I've earned this degree and I've achieved the highest degree in the land, what do I have to do next as a black man to succeed? That was the only reason I wanted to know. And that is a question for America. What do I have to do next to prove myself worthy? Well, I don't have to prove myself worthy. But that's the question that a lot of African Americans have in their mind what do I have to do next? Because simply we're only talking about the hue of my skin, not the level of my intelligence, but simply being black. And, and you had mentioned something to me, and I thought about it, and you were absolutely correct. When we first began this conversation prior to the recording, you said, there's risk to this. Yeah, and that's where I landed, right? Because So the first thing I was really... Uh, thinking about is, is so what and who am I putting at risk by mm -hmm. making this change? And mm -hmm. for me, I mean, just based on my core values, the first thing I think about actually would be my family, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think about it in the context of, you know, I have a teenage son and a teenage daughter. Mm -hmm. And I think about the context of how the world would change, what my concerns would be, if mm -hmm. my son was a young black man and my daughter was a young black woman. Mm -hmm. And that risk in and of itself would be enough for me not to do it. Right. Because of the risk to my son in particular, um, 
you know, as a kid who's maybe a little bit bigger than some of the other kids, mm -hmm. looks a little bit more mature, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, you translate that into what we've seen across America over the course of all time. Yeah. Uh, and people see this little boy as a danger yeah. to them. Yeah. And we know that fear, uh, fear creates a lot of bad behavior. Mm -hmm. Fear creates a lot of danger for people. It's kind of, it's like a Star Wars quote from Master Yoda, right? Mm -hmm. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. These are the paths to the dark side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just think about it in the context of my son and how at risk he would be from stuff that's part of his normal existence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Driving himself to school, mm -hmm. driving home, mm -hmm. being out at night with his friends, mm -hmm. and all these kind of things that are stressful enough mm -hmm. as a teenage parent. That's right. <laughs> I mean, they're stressful that's, enough that's in right. their own right. That's right. They don't need anything extra. That's right. But if I were legitimately worried about what would happen to him in a traffic stop mm -hmm. on any given day, mm -hmm. I don't know how I would how I would be able to navigate that. Right. You know, it's interesting because <clears throat> even as an older male as a black male, I still have those concerns. You know, one of my greatest fears is going out there and being stopped by the officers for no reason whatsoever other than being black. And so when I think about it, as you thought about it from the other side, guess what? I don't have those concerns. I have a, a better relationship with officers simply because I'm a white male. That's amazing because... You know, and I think about all the people that I now know that have gotten what they call their DWB mm -hmm. ticket or pulled, right, driving while black. Mm -hmm. The former president of the Old North State Medical Society, and of course, remember, I'm a former president of North Carolina Medical Society, mm -hmm. which was the historic white medical society. Old North State was the historic black medical society. Lots of reasons behind that. Mm -hmm. Episode worthy in the future, maybe. But, you know, now both, both societies are more open. But the point is, he himself, as a physician in North Carolina, well-known, mm -hmm. got pulled over for driving while black. Mm -hmm. No violation, mm -hmm. no nothing. Uh, and so for years I have known that that was a phenomenon. And, and understanding the how and the why has been a source of motivation for me to do some of this work. But man, I can't sit here and pretend that I'd be comfortable with it if it was right. If if I was having to be part of that, right, right. You know, <clears throat> I have to walk in it daily, and I do the best that I can uh, without getting upset. Uh, sometimes I do get upset and get a little belligerent about it, um, and then you know, especially when you 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 study what's happening, you study, and the only difference really is the hue of the skin, and so. As I think about it from a white man's perspective, I also have privilege of being favored by school authorities. Absolutely. You know, we see that. We can substantiate that on our Healthy Communities dashboard that we've talked about, right, where mm -hmm. you look at the differences in third grade reading level by race. You look at the differences in 
a school suspension rate where mm -hmm. the disparity at the time the dashboard was created was eight to one. Mm -hmm. So your chances of being suspended from school as a black child were eight times what they were as a white child, which is twice the state average here in New Hanover County, by the way. But still, a state average of four to one is pretty bad anyway. So it's not confined to us, right? Like this is a systemic problem. That's right. And as I contemplated the ramifications of being a black man, I was thinking just immersed in systemic problems at every level. And the, there's one that is, you know, the school one. Mm -hmm. And we know, I mean, I cannot deny that that is true. I mean, it is in facts and figures everywhere. When I reviewed all this <laughs> literature ahead of time, 150 yeah. peer-reviewed articles behind mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this uh I mean, it's, it's just there. I mean, the data is clear. And, you know, that's, that's what, what makes it so interesting because, you know, as, as we begin to see technology evolve and people begin to talk about big data and AI, one of the very first questions I asked years ago about big data is, so how will big data be used to eradicate racism, bias, and prejudice and to date it still exists right but all the data as you said is clear all those peer-reviewed uh, articles you've reviewed 150 but it doesn't appear as if we're making a lot of headway toward the eradication of it and and that's because probably because it's a system right and there are many moving parts you know with, with this system. And another part of the school issue is I have the privilege as a white male of attending segregated schools of affluence. Yeah, and that started a long time <laughs> ago, right? right. That's the, you know, people forget that the original affirmative action programs in this country which date back to the 1600s at least, mm -hmm. are all white affirmative action. Yes. Whether you talk about the land grants, whether you talk about what it meant to be an indentured servant and get mm -hmm. your freedom, whether you talk mm -hmm. about the other little smaller land grants, mm -hmm. you know, where it is a dollar an acre for 640 acres <laughs> yeah, on the yeah. first one, and then yeah. it went to a dollar an acre for 320. All these things were white affirmative action. Mm -hmm. You look at the Flexner Report in the 1920s, which basically closed all but two of the black medical schools in the country. Mm -hmm. And at that time, it was only Howard and Meharry that remained. Mm -hmm. And blacks really weren't eligible for any other medical schools. And what we see right now, for instance, in our industry mm -hmm. is that this remains a profound problem. Mm -hmm. And... We have peer-reviewed work coming out on a regular basis about how important it is for what's called provider concordance. And the best example I can give of that is it's very profound in um, OB, in obstetrics, mm -hmm. where the studies are very clear that the outcomes for black women and children who are taken care of by a black obstetrician mm -hmm. are much better Mm -hmm. than those taken care of 
identify a white obstetrician, but the reverse is not true. Mm -hmm. So this is very clear. Now, what we don't know is exactly why that is. We can hypothesize on Mm -hmm. why it is. Mm -hmm. But in point of fact, there's such a profound shortage of physicians who are uh, any other ethnicity than white that we know we have real problems that are driving these disparities that we talk about all the time Mm -hmm. in the dashboard. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, it's a a bit of a range from our topic, but I think it's pertinent because, Mm -hmm. again, what we're Mm -hmm. talking about is headwinds, right? Mm -hmm. So I've been a surgeon, and granted, the medical schools across the country are integrated now, without a doubt, but what we know is that just because – they're integrated doesn't mean that the opportunity is the same. So the likelihood is that if we made that switch, I might be looking at a total different career path just because of opportunity to get into school. You know, um, I think it was United Negro College funds is a great mind. Uh, 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 a mind is a terrible thing to waste, right? And that's what you're talking about by if someone is not given the opportunity or an opportunity all people need is an opportunity in order to uh, excel Uh, I know we like to say that um, if the playing field is equal we'll always excel but that's not the case in reality and so what I heard from my parents was you got to be two times as good, three times as good, four times as good just to get the same opportunity. And for the most part, I can say that now from a white male perspective, <laughs> which I get that opportunity today, <laughs> I don't have to be. We can take a look at the world of politics. We can take a look at some people who were president and they didn't have to be anything but average in order to become president. Um, So it's an interesting topic. You know, one of the things, or one of the questions I've always asked, and I've asked this of some, some high school friends, you know, what happened once we graduated from high school? We, we played ball together, as I like to say, we, we bled together, we sweated together, we cried together. And I thought those were bonds that would be kind of a life, lifetime kind of bonds. But what I quickly found out after graduation is all of a sudden the paths were different. And so when does, when does the separate walk begin? For me, it began in high school with some of my friends that I played ball with. But when does it actually begin? I know you and I were kind of talking about that. Yeah, there may, I'm sure there are probably individual differences, mm-hmm. but but I can absolutely pinpoint when it really began for me. And my background maybe you know is different than a lot of people, but certainly not unique. Um, you know, I grew up the son of a coach, mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. during the era of school integration, and mm-hmm. so. My peer group from the time I was small, the athletes my dad was coaching, the athletes I played with, even all the way through college where I was affiliated with the basketball team, so the my real closest peer group at that time, all the way through to my first career as a school teacher, it didn't happen yet. Mm-hmm. 
but mm-hmm. I can say for sure when it really happened in earnest was at the mm-hmm. moment I started medical school. Mm-hmm. And from that moment on, it was obvious to somebody who had the right eye on it, mm-hmm. which was not me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because I didn't realize it. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not realize that all of a sudden I was living in a segregated world. It's mm-hmm. kind of like the fish can't tell us in water. <laughs> right, right, right. And so as a white male, most of the people that in that peer group, as a medical student, as a medical resident, and even as a physician, were fellow white males mm-hmm. and then white females. Mm-hmm. And so... It wasn't until it wasn't until I had come back to Wilmington, and my son was maybe three years old, and we were at some community event, and I was talking to my high school classmate, happened mm-hmm. to be Jonathan Barfield, mm-hmm. and on the way back home, my son asked me, he said, "Dad, who was that brown man you were talking to?" Mm. And I didn't know what to like. It really. Uh, I'm curious by nature, so it really made me think. Like, I didn't didn't know what to think about it, so my wife and I talked about it, and really we realized that the environment that he was in all the time was pretty highly segregated. I mean, as a three-year-old, he didn't even know. Mm -hmm. Like, he he had not encountered Mm -hmm. a black person Mm -hmm. at that time, somebody Mm -hmm. whose skin was dark like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it was really at that time that my wife and I committed to make sure that the kids had different experiences mm-hmm. because we knew without that intention, mm-hmm. um, it couldn't happen. Mm-hmm. But then when we get back to our original sort of question of the episode, just because I recognize it doesn't mean I know what it feels like, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. that has kind of become a theme, um, not just for my life in the work of mm-hmm. equity and health equity, but a theme in life, mm-hmm. actually. And mm-hmm. it, it actually applies to a lot of other things mm-hmm. other than mm-hmm. race. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. more I apply it, the more curious I get, the, mm-hmm. the better I seem to understand. Mm-hmm. So it was a valuable experience, although certainly one that uh, was uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, after high school, I attended a historically black college University, North Carolina Central University. As I reflect back on it, I did have some high school friends that I played ball with who ended up over at Duke University right across town. So we did keep in contact, and we did play tennis together and hang out because he played football, I played football. And and so that relationship, you know, was there. I come back home to visit, and a good friend of mine, I, you know, buy all my tires from. You know, I go see him. And uh, so there were some selective relationships that remain, but the masses of the relationships, for whatever reason, um, began a different kind of, of journey. And I've always been real curious about that because a friend is a friend is a friend uh, to me. And it really doesn't, doesn't matter. But it's obvious there are some differences. And we know that life happens. And so that's some of it as well. Um, but that whole thing about what we see in this country about, you know, separation and race and segregation, it, it, it happens, you know, it, it, it happened for me around that whole adult time, right? And I'm sitting here and I'm trying to wonder, and I'm like, 
not, I'm not understanding, right? I'm not understanding. And then because you, you go, you get your degree, and you, you go into the workforce. And <laughs> my first position was with a transportation company, Norfolk Southern Corporation, which is in the, rail, the, the, the railroad business. And so it's a different kind, of, and it was in Georgia. So that was a whole different kind of experience. Um, because you had you had management, you had union, you had certain philosophies and mindsets that you had to deal with that may not have been your own, and and you know you're talking about at a time where in that particular company um, there wasn't a great deal of African Americans being hired in the position that I went into, and so it was really keep your head down, uh, work hard, and see where you can make it, but. Of course, that whole diversity, equity, inclusion—it was just getting off of, of 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 the ground, and you could see within that work environment what was what, right? You kind of had a feel for where you actually stood in that work environment as a as a white male or as a black male. You fully understood where you um, where you stood. But as I look back and as I reflect on uh, what it would potentially be like for me for to be a white male. Um, unlike you, I have what I think a, a, a clearer picture of what that would look like, right, for me. Uh, and part of that goes to I have the privilege of learning about my race in school as a white male, whereas Others don't. Yeah, and that connects two themes, right? So um, I know for sure that in real life when I was in school, we didn't learn essentially anything. Dr. King. About <laughs> right, right. You know, we didn't learn anything about 1898, right. which happened right here in right. our hometown. That's right. That's we right. didn't learn any of that stuff. Um, and that allows that, I mean, ignorance allows things to, to remain hidden. And one of the things I think that remained hidden to me and really connects with when this great separation comes is uh, the different the, the different living conditions mm -hmm. that often exist. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. again, in the research, what we can say for sure is concentrated poverty mm -hmm. is a very different thing. It means a different thing for opportunities. It means a different thing uh, for future potential of multiple different kinds. And across the 50 states, there's not a single state where white people live in concentrated poverty. Mm. Zero. Mm. Mm. Now, mm. if you change that lens and you look at how many states there are where blacks live in concentrated poverty, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's 26 states. Mm -hmm. And we know North Carolina is one of them. Mm -hmm. And we know that that phenomenon exists in our hometown of Wilmington yep. because in communities of color, the poverty rate's about 36%, which is well over double the overall poverty rate and much higher than the, than the rate of white poverty. Mm -hmm. It goes deeper than that too, though, because it goes to the way out. Because when it's concentrated poverty and folks don't see those opportunities or don't have different connections that expose them to opportunities 
it's a trap. Yep. Whereas when it's not concentrated poverty and people can see what those opportunities are and maybe have connections to what those opportunities are, that's an escape hatch. So if we go back to our original question, mm -hmm. who's at risk, what's <laughs> at risk, you know, like I'm saying, you yeah. know, so my odds would be more likely than not that no matter what state I went to as a black man, concentrated poverty would exist in my communities. Um, and in the town that I live in, I know that it exists. You know, that's real interesting because I've, I've, I've heard, you know, a lot of black people make this, this comment said, I didn't know I was poor until I went to school. Because even though we talk about the concentrated poverty, no one had labeled it in the in, in the black community. It it just what what it it's what was, right? And you didn't see it. You know, you you got up, you lived, you did what you you did, and you weren't concerned with people saying, "Oh, you're poor," you know, you're living in poverty. And oftentimes, from a resource perspective, there may have been quote unquote private poverty. But from a love perspective, there was abundance. And so we kind of lived off the love of the family and people whispering in your ear, you can do what you want to do, wherever you want to do it, how you want to do it. You just got to believe in yourself, right? And you got to have a plan. And, of course, the whole uh, line behind education, go get an education, go get it. That's the, that's the future, right? That's how you get out. You know, I can tell you that as I grew up, you know, there were probably – 15 or 20 gentlemen who were old, maybe five years older than I. And as I watched them and observed them growing up, I saw all of them go off to college. And so I knew what I was going to do based upon what they did. And of course, their parents were telling them, you know, go to college, get a good education, go get a good job. Now, what that should be today is go to college, start a business start a business, then go to college, it should be a little bit different because we understand the importance of entrepreneurship as, re as it relates to economics in the African-American community and, and any community. But, the, the, you know, the, the college to, because to, college isn't for everyone, um, the college to job, you know, is not what it used to be. And so entrepreneurship, different skills that you know are definitely needed which also leads to another one of those points here see i have the privilege of finding children's books that overwhelmingly show me in a positive um, perspective we know that's true we see it all the time and so many same same thing in my research there are mm -hmm. so many uh, obvious places where that is the case. And mm -hmm. not only, you know, that's the positive spin. Mm -hmm. The flip side is, is that if I'm a black man, I'm the villain on television, <laughs> right? Yep, I'm yep, the yep. dangerous one. Yep. I don't care if you're going to print media that was happening in 1898 where mm -hmm. I was portrayed as a monster mm -hmm. or whether you're looking at any of the television that has existed throughout the course of my life That's right. where I'm That's typically right. the criminal if I'm the black man, That's right. uh, including even now. Uh, right. And we see it. We see it in portrayals 
on the news. I saw one last week where the victim of the crime in this case was black. And that's the picture that was in the article, the victim <laughs> instead of the perpetrator. And we know how that typically plays out otherwise in the whole mugshot scheme, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's another thing that I just, again, when I look at it and when I, when I contemplate what it would mean for me to take that on, yeah. it's yeah. just tough. I mean, I, you know. We can, we can reflect back on Katrina. And you could see the news media, and they were talking about how they showed pictures of black people who were walking through the water and had goods in their hand, and the news media said that they were looting. And then we saw another picture on the same news with white people walking through the water with goods in their hand, and the news people said, well, they were trying to survive. They were, they, were, they were trying to make it with everything that they had. And I'm like, so what's the difference? Right. It's the same. But in the news media's mind, there was a difference. And that difference was based upon the skin color and how they actually see a group of people versus those who look like them. And they could say it and not even realize it. And someone has to point it out to their attention. Did you see what you just said? Did you hear what you just said? And it's like the ignorance of, or, or the, the lack of awareness of, of not even uh, saying that. Yeah. The biggest risk, right? So yeah. we, we make this switch. The biggest risk for me really is that phenomenon right here. Because what underlies that is this implicit bias, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Is that. As a black man, people see me as more dangerous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, a lot mm -hmm. of times, even if there are other black men. Mm -hmm. I mean, we saw it. I remember Jesse Jackson talking about it one time because mm -hmm. he came to Wilmington when I was a senior in high school mm -hmm. and talking about how when he looked behind him, if it was a white man, he was relieved, and if it was a black man, he was more nervous. And I, that struck me as funny then, but I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I'm still a little bit struck and understanding why he said it, mm -hmm. but I understand the phenomenon now because we are immersed in it yes. constantly, and, and media portrays it that way. This gets to the topic of inclusion. That's right. And you're starting to see some things done a little bit better now in some realms, mm -hmm. Netflix sometimes, Apple sometimes, other, other media sources, but it's not systemic. That's right. right? That's right. It's taken intention and effort to do it. And even then, it may not be done exactly right. So that underscores the importance of having inclusive teams, mm -hmm. inclusive workforces, mm -hmm. because you need to really be able to vet things that you don't understand through someone who can understand it, no matter who you are. That's right it's a core phenomenon of why inclusion is so important on a team. It's no different than you can't have all point guards playing basketball, right? Cause you'll never get a rebound. That's right. Right. You, you can't have all scorers who are marginal on defense cause you'll give up too many points. That's right. You have to have a cohesive team where people may have some overlapping skills, but a lot of what they bring is, unique to their given worldview and perspective and mindset. And it's the melding of that 
the curiosity to work through tough uh, situations to have difficult discussions, mm-hmm. which brings out a whole nother thing. I'm sitting there thinking like, man, if I'm Terry and I'm trying to have a difficult conversation, then mm. I become an angry black man. Exactly. <laughs> and I've been called that before. And I'm like, no, it's not anger. It's passion. And you've mistaken passion for anger because of what you've bought into given the images you've seen on television or any movie that you may have seen or anything on the news media, right? And so a little my, my, my voice goes up an octave, and he has to be angry. And I'm like, there's no such thing as an angry black man, and there's no such thing as an angry black woman. You know, we become passionate about how we, how we speak, and we are an emotional people. And as a result of that, sometimes a lot of that is misconstrued simply because of the antics of, as I'm talking with my hands now, right? Because we do a lot of that, whether we're doing it in fun and, and talking. I do a, I'm do. i a trash talker, right? So I love to talk trash about sports. And I use the same kind of antics. But now we're having this conversation, and I'm using the same kind of antics. It's just who I am. It's just who we are as a people. And if... Those w- if those who don't understand would take more time to understand, even if it's having a one-on-one conversation with someone, like a young lady asked me when I was in high school. We were at the beach together. It was senior, I think it was the end of the year. We were down at Wrightsville Beach, and all of the seniors were down there, both black and white. So the young lady, she was comfortable enough to come up to me and said, you know, Terry, how do you guys dry your hair? I looked at it and I smiled. And I said, you know, I dry my hair the same way you do, either a hairdryer or a towel. But it was obvious she didn't know. But she was comfortable enough at least to ask someone, so now she does know. And so for those who don't know, I would say find somebody that you have, that, that, that you can have that uncomfortable conversation with but who will give you uh, actual information. Here's part of the challenge. I think there's some research that says that most white people do not have a black friend. That's part of the challenge. You can't solve anything if you don't have the ability to communicate, right? And now why that is the case, I really don't know. Because that's truly exclusion and not inclusion, and that's part of the challenge of why inclusion doesn't work in the workplace. Because most white people don't have black friends. That brings us to a really important question. So what has to change Mm -hmm. in in order? So in our perfect world, if we were to make the switch, it wouldn't matter. Right. right? Let's just put that out there. If we could, if we could pick anything and say when the world was perfect, then it wouldn't matter. That's right. The color of your skin wouldn't matter. That's right. How many things and what are they that have to change in order to make those kind of switches viable? Yeah. That is a long list. Long list. And ultimately, I'll, I'm going to say that's a whole cultural transformation, right? That's, uh, that's a lot of humility of having to ask those that you may not like, what is it like? How can I become better at communicating with you? How can we treat you better? How can the system as a whole, because this thing is systemic, how can the system as a whole not be changed, but be transformed? Which means you got to deconstruct the system and reconstruct the system 
with all parties involved in the reconstruction of the system. And that kind of gets to, you know, what do each of us individually have to do mm -hmm. to bring to the game to collectively make an impact, right? Because mm -hmm. it's both. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I think is so important is that proximity because you talked about earlier mm -hmm. you know if we don't have cross-racial friends we're missing a lot of the world that's right um you, you can't read it in a book you can't and a lot of our whole theme today has been you know i can intellectualize some of these things mm -hmm. it's much harder to feel what it would feel like Right, you know, and as we have these conversations, we try to empathy would indicate that that's what we try to do, right? right. We try to convert it to a feeling, um, and that's what we have to do. I think it definitely it starts, it can start individually mm -hmm. with relationships, and that can go a long way. Mm -hmm. It won't go far enough, though until we have the right courage as the white guy in the room mm -hmm. to call out some things to say, why do you think that's true? Or what would make you say that? Mm -hmm. And then ultimately to work on policy. Yep. We have to get to the policy realm and we have to be careful about that little, that little paradox we always talk about intent versus impact, right? right. It doesn't matter how well intentioned I am. My impact is what my impact is. And that's what I need to really be cognizant of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> you know, we kind of talked about, or I painted the picture from Katrina and how the news media painted African-Americans who had goods in their hand and, and whites. And that leads me to this, as a white man, I have the privilege of escaping violent stereotypes associated with my race. All the way back. <laughs> all the way back, right? Like, yeah. I keep yeah. seeing the, the picture that we see. And, you know, this is, we just happen to be recording this episode in the anniversary week of Wilmington's 1898 massacre. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you look at the newspaper clippings from News and Observer back in that day and how they were portraying black men in particular as monsters mm -hmm. using fear. Mm -hmm. And we know power guards fear mm -hmm. always has, always will to create something that really ultimately we haven't gotten over because, you know, mm -hmm. we've still got this open wound of 1898, but you know, that imagery that drives fear uh, is, is so powerful. And, how do we use curiosity to begin to question that? Because we saw it, we saw it, uh, I saw an episode on 60 minutes last night that mm -hmm. talked about some of the things that social media was driving basically and how it really was driving the anger. And so you've got this 80% of people who basically shy away from that, maybe 85% and you got 7% mm -hmm. on either extreme of this just, venom that's being spewed mm -hmm. but then you've got this majority of people who at that point just don't engage i mean they don't recoil they mm -hmm. don't mm -hmm. react they just mm -hmm. 
disengage and let the anger reign. And, mm-hmm. it, and ultimately, over time, their acquaintances, their social connections, and we know what they look like. We've already covered in this episode how you know we have a lot of segregated relationships, but it can be segregated mm-hmm. in those realms That's as true. well. That's right. It drives these perspectives that bear no resemblance to the current reality. That's right. And and you know you have to ask the question then is, <clears throat> where who, who's collecting the money? Because at the at the root of all of this and all of that that you just described lies some profit, and there's someone profiting off of all of this chaotic behavior that's happening on social media, whether you have the you know. And what I mean, right against the left, I'm not talking about politics. You have one one side against the other, right? And then you got these people in the in, in the middle. Well, whether you're on the right or the left or in the middle, there's somebody making money from you, right? And if we, you know, as we're approaching election day tomorrow, yes, we can also bring politics in it, That's and we right. can talk about how, going back to our original scenario, I as a black man have been disadvantaged by the whole way campaigns have been run mm-hmm. to make the country scared of me, whether I'm a, a drug dealer, mm-hmm. whether I'm a super criminal, mm-hmm. super predator, yep. I think yeah, it was, yeah, was a super you know, back yeah, in the day. Yeah. <laughs> All these things, right? And it, basically the offshoot of it is that it prevents solidarity. Yes. Between, uh, especially in the whole labor-producing part of the workforce, right? And... I think one of the things that, as we talked about this topic, really hit me so hard and made me just feel, you know, I don't even know how I felt. But, you know, the thing about those, the way those campaigns have run, the way the dialogue has been, is that it has made it so people would say they would rather be anything yeah. but me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's, that is so fundamentally messed up. Uh, you know, I mean, and when I think about that, I don't even know. I'm just, just stammering around trying to even figure it out because I think what is hitting me is a feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's hard. Sometimes it's hard uh, for white men to describe their feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yep, but nonetheless, yep. <laughs> but, right. but, right, like, I, you know, I'm ha- I have this feeling of how profoundly unjust that really is, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I intellectualize the piece of it because of the friends that I have that are, mm-hmm. that are of all different ethnicities, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. especially in my case, a lot of, black male friends mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who are like yourself, who are mm-hmm. just incredibly gifted and have, who have enriched my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about what a tragedy it is that such a large proportion of our society is being duped into missing out on that. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the things that, that black people talk about all the time um, around uh, us is how others like to steal our culture, our music, our way of dress, um, our way of dance, how we do things. And there was a, a comedian, and you might be familiar with him, uh, uh, Paul Mooney. He says, everybody wants to be black, but nobody wants to be black. Meaning you want everything associated with, from the, from the entertainment, the athletics, 
uh, from the cooking. You want everything associated with black culture except the black people. And that's something that has always kind of resonated with me, right? Is that as I, you know, as I, I around the world, you go out and you, you take a look at all this happening, right? It's like, wow, I can imagine, you know, that the origins of that, you know, in the black community, the origins of that in Africa. But yet and still, um, those origins being preyed upon, right? And, you know, I can take a look at the, uh, the logo of Starbucks, and I can tell you where that came from. You know, not many people knew it until you had to go do a little bit of research, but, you know, that was an, an African yoga, uh, logo, uh, or actually that was an African queen that they utilized and, and crafted into the logo for Starbucks. And a lot of people don't know that history. Um, and so when he says everybody wants to be black but nobody wants to be black, that really resonated. Now, I'm going to go to another one of the points here. And the point is, I have the privilege of playing the colorblind card, wiping the slate clean of centuries of racism. And of course, I've heard many, many people say, um, I'm color, I, I don't see color, right? And I'm sure if I were a white man, I probably would say the same thing because it gets me off the hook very, very quickly as a white man. I don't see color, I just see people. And I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that kind of takes me back to my story about yeah. my three-year-old son, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. When did I go blind? <laughs> right? Of course, we all do see it. And that's, that's right. you know, that's and right. now I love, I think, I think it's Melody Hobson that does the, does the TED talk on uh, color brave rather than mm -hmm. color blind. And I do mm -hmm. think that's so important because what's missing is white culture doesn't celebrate the richness of the other cultures. We don't even really celebrate the richness of our own. That's our mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. um, but think about how much more robust we could be if we celebrated people's strengths. Mm -hmm. Kind of reminds me of our whole show, right? Like mm -hmm. you're never going to hear us say "woe is me" on this show. If, That's right. If you do, I want you to call us out on it. That's right. You know, <laughs> because there's always room to maneuver. There's always yeah. room to That's be right. curious and get better. And you know, the thing about the intersection is. Traffic keeps coming to it, That's right? right? All the time. And we have a conversation like today, and guess what? There's no answer. That's right. You know, we're not going to get to a resolution on what this would look like, but hopefully we've helped a few people, and we appreciate folks listening to us and to our audience. If you want to catch up with us a little bit more, find us at unlikelyintersection.com. Look for us on YouTube. Like and share. Uh, find me at Doc Philip Brown on LinkedIn. You can find me, Terry Jackson, PhD, on LinkedIn. And we hope that this particular episode uh, really provokes thought, more importantly, provokes conversation so that we can begin to understand each other better, so that we can have the solidarity needed as a country to move forward. Thanks for joining us today.